What's up, guys? Welcome back to Legendary Habitat Podcast. Uh, this is your host, Colin Koskinen, and I hope everybody's doing good. I'm finally uh, back on with a much long uh, break that I've had since I've done another podcast, but I want to come back on here. I've got some more guests lined up, and uh, I've got an exciting one for you guys tonight. I have uh, Jaden on here. He is a consulting forester uh, out of Minnesota, and uh, he helps landowners from forestry to wildlife habitat, uh, improving their property. So I am excited to have him on here. And uh, so without further ado, Jaden, are you there? Yep, I'm here. Great. Well, thanks a lot for coming on here. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So uh, obviously, you uh, have you grown up in Minnesota your whole life? Or I guess you can still give a little bit of your background and where you came from, and then uh, we can dive into some other topics. Yep. So yeah, I was born and raised in Minnesota. I actually grew up um, south of St. Paul a little ways, so kind of a city boy, but then would have a lot of our summers spent up at our family farm up in northwest Minnesota, um, where my grandpa was farmed and everything like that. So we spent a lot of our summers up there. Um, We have 200 acres up there that we um, manage for deer um, and everything like that. So that's kind of what got me into um what i'm doing now and after kind of you know getting into hunting i started bow hunting kind of around that 15 16 years old and got hooked on that and then got more into managing you know the habitat the wildlife and got to get interested in that and um, eventually went on to school at st john's university it's kind of in central minnesota and got a degree in environmental science and biology um and then went on to work uh for the dnr the minnesota dnr down in southeastern Minnesota, um, and then worked for another wildlife management company out of Alexandria, which is northwest kind of area. Um, and then eventually, and throughout college, I kind of worked as a forester because St. John's, we have 3,000 acres of woods, wetlands, prairie, kind of all of it. So I worked under the forester there for four years. So I knew forestry was something I kind of wanted to get into. Sure. And then eventually got connected to um, private consulting. And kind of been doing that ever since. I worked for um, a guy for a year and a half or so, and then kind of went off on my own and been doing that ever since. Wow, very cool. That's uh, that's very extensive, and uh, sounds like you put some time in. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely, there's definitely, but I mean, it's all good. It was really good experience doing the different. Um, you know, I was kind of like a wildlife technician, basically for you know, a year there. So that was really good with actually the implementation side of things. And then throughout there, I was lucky enough to be, uh, well, at the time it was QDMA, a QDMA intern. So I got to work under Kip Adams and, and Matt Ross a little bit too. So I got to do um, the steer, steer Steward 1 course at the time. And then actually this two weekends ago, I think go to Ben, I finally completed the Deer Steward 2 because it was actually just in Wisconsin. So it was a lot closer than I think at the time would have been down in Georgia or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. So what was your main role uh, when you were working with Matt Matt and uh, Kip? Um, it was doing a lot of kind of compiling different data with a lot of their uh, quality whitetails kind of magazines and some of the data they come out with. And then I even was having to contact a state agency with getting the data that ends up getting into their um, the whitetail report that they give out every year. Okay. So it was kind of a little bit of that. Um, and then just kind of doing some other 
kind of smaller things uh, with regarding to, it wasn't anything specific too much with like their deck. Cause I don't even know if they had, the field of fork wasn't too big at the time. And it was a kind of um, just more with their overall, you know, plan of kind of the retention um, for hunters was a big thing that I worked on a little bit too. So it was just kind of a lot of paperwork kind of stuff at the time, which I still enjoyed cause it was, it was fun paperwork to work on, but it was nothing too crazy with getting out in the field. Yeah. 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 No, that sounds like a great start. A lot of, a lot of good background information. And, uh, that's some good, good stuff to know for sure. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Definitely good connections to have. And yeah. Definitely learned a lot. Yeah. They are a tremendous resource. I've learned a lot from them. Had the pleasure of uh, meeting both of them and, uh, yeah, really great guys. So, Absolutely. Um, yeah. So I guess we can kind of dive into, uh, your business. So that is, um, no, what what is that north or uh i'm sorry yep northland habitat northland habitat yeah thank you um so i guess when when did you actually start your your business so it's probably about a, been almost a year and a half now coming up on okay um, so been a little bit but not but i've been doing you know pretty much the same thing for you know, almost three years now um but just you know branched off and did my own thing now for a year and a half sure yeah so what's kind of your, you know, day to day, you know, uh, you know, month by month kind of job, uh, routine, what are you, what are you kind of working on? Um, what, what clients and stuff, or what are you doing on client properties, I guess? Yeah. Um, so kind of the big thing that I do is write, uh, you know, forest management plans for private landowners here in Minnesota. And, uh, so that'll be, you know, going out to a landowner's property walking it with them, educating them on what they have with forestry, wildlife, um, ecology, even, you know, I look at wetlands, you know, it's pretty much the whole gamut of what they have on the property. Um, and then obviously the bigger deer hunters, you know, we're talking a lot of deer management. I kind of cater it to, you know, whatever they're interested in, obviously, because I get, you know, more bird watching type of people or maybe more heavier turkey hunting, whatever it is. Sure. So I kind of got a wide range of of landowners and obviously there's kind of different engagement uh with the land itself too from those landowners um because ultimately when they get this forest management plan a lot of them get it obviously just to get you know a plan in place it's a 10-year plan and kind of get some started on some habitat projects and you know how to improve their property but then because they do this and they get educated um, and they get this plan in place they qualify for tax break programs um here in minnesota so that's kind of a big incentive that landowners will get it too um, so I'll be doing that, you know, pretty much year round. Um, but then with that timber sales ends up kind of branching off, um, is something that I, uh, provide too. So, you know, if a landowner has a decent amount of timber and, you know, especially if it's mature stuff in closed canopy type settings, usually I'm going to recommend, you know, either they're going in and doing, you know, forestry and improving themselves or, um, actually having a logger come in and, and harvesting some trees, depending on the situation. So then winter time. Usually it's going to be a lot of um, timber sale work, but then we do a little bit of that in the summertime as well. It just kind of depends. Okay. So now you're an actual forester, correct? Correct. Okay. So as far as in these plans, when you're creating these, are you actually, you know, let's say a landowner has some timber value they want to, you know, and they want better habitat. Are you coming in and actually you're marking trees and then you're basically bidding out jobs for loggers? Are you taking care of that whole side? Yep, yep. That's okay. definitely um, kind of what comes with that timber sales. If they're ending up wanting to to follow through with the timber sales, then I'll usually do another walkthrough with them and do more of a 
timber focused um, type of walkthrough, actually looking at, you know, the quality of timber and then what types of loggers are out there and kind of what I'm seeing in terms of what the best prescription might be. Um, and then, yeah, it might either be just a general prescription with, you know, maybe a basal area thinning or even actually, yeah, a lot of times it's actually going there and marking the trees out. And then we end up putting the sale out for bid um, and having a logger, um, you know, multiple ones bid on it, hopefully. Um, and then, you know, obviously just find the right logger for that particular landowner. Sure, sure. So real quick, I know you mentioned basal area. Can you give kind of a really um, um, kind of dumbed down version for people who don't understand basal area and stuff and kind of go over that when you're looking at uh, property? Yeah. What, what I guess uh, is a good basal area if you're looking for white-tail habitat, stuff like that. Yep, yep, because that's obviously always one that I usually explain to landowners. And I kind of sure. want it's pretty good to um, kind of work off of because, I mean, the easiest way that I put it, I mean, one way to look at it is that if, like, where all the trees were 12 inches in diameter at breast site in a little area, it'd be the number of trees per acre. Um, and so an average diameter or an average basal area is going to be around 120 um, so you're kind of looking at 120, 130, 120 or 130 trees per acre. Um, but I think an easier way or kind of better understanding sometimes it's like, it's almost like the amount of sunlight sometimes that's coming into a forest. You know, if you have mm -hmm. a high basal area, you're not going to have a whole lot of sunlight coming into that forest versus if you have a lower basal area, you have lower stem density and the basal is going to be a lot more sunlight coming in there. So it does go, you know, back to what their goals are and if they're in it more for timber production or wildlife because then if you're in it and you can obviously do both um but obviously if, if you're in it for wildlife or deer specifically you want areas where you know you're getting down to that 50 basal area you're letting in a bunch of sunlight in there and getting a bunch of understory vegetation growth versus if your whole property was you know 160 basal area really high stem density there's going to be no sunlight getting to that forest floor and it's probably going to be a closed canopy setting and there's going to be, you know, virtually sometimes no vegetation in the understory for habitat or forage. Sure, sure. Yep. Yeah, no, thanks. That was a <clears throat> great example. Um, so, yeah, when you're kind of going through these different plans, you know, obviously every landowner's got different goals and objectives. Um, can you kind of explain, uh, let's go a little bit into the difference between timber stand improvement and forest stand improvement and how that kind of applies to different landowners and their goals yep um yeah that's a good one and it does definitely go back to you know if they're more going for timber value on their property or if they're caring more for the wildlife value um because i the way i look at it at least is you know timber stand improvement you're basically improving your forest to increase the value of the trees that are there so you're maybe you know not really thinning it out you know cutting as many trees down um to allow that sunlight to get in there to basically lower that basal area. Um, if you're in it for more timber focused, you know, trying to increase that value because you don't necessarily want to cut down a bunch of, you know, potential trees that in the future might end up making, you know, a nice log or whatever it is that might have some value in the future. Sure. So you're definitely a little more selective with when you're going in and actually, you know, removing some of the trees in there because even with timber stand improvement, you know, you are taking some trees out. They're going to be the less value ones, the ones that probably aren't going to, you know, make amounts to anything. Um, but then you're leaving a lot more around. That's going to be, you know, your crop trees in a sense. That's hopefully going to take up that extra sunlight that you maybe just released. And then, you know, eventually turn into, you know, a nicer tree down the road. Sure, sure. 
Yeah, for sure. I think versus um, the forest stand improvement, uh, that's what I think is kind of more. You're really focusing on that wildlife, on that deer habitat, and not necessarily caring too much about, you know, the future value of the tree. So you might be cutting a little bit heavier, getting some hinge cuts in there, um, just kind of making some good bedding habitat, and then just opening up that canopy to allow a lot of sunlight to that forest floor. Yeah, yeah. So ideally, in kind of that forest stand improvement um, setting, what kind of, what percentage of sunlight have you found um, or I guess, are you recommending for most clients getting to the floor? You want to try and shoot for around, you know, if you're just trying to provide, and it's kind of a, you know, tinkering a little bit, because obviously you don't necessarily want to, you know, cut your, you know, allow 100% of or you know, 50 plus 100% um, sunlight into, you know, all of your forest. But if you start with at least just that 30% sunlight getting in there, that's going to increase, you know, the forage and the understory. There's actually numbers out there that actually the, the National Deer Association has. I think it's if you reduce um, your canopy or open up um, 30% of it, I think it's a 750-pound increase in understory forage okay. um, yep. per, per acre, and that's deer forage specifically. And that's kind of obviously based off if you had a closed canopy-type setting. Um, and then if you even increase that a little bit more, you know, get 50% sunlight into your forest floor, you're going to be upwards around that thousand pounds of forage per acre. And then you obviously go up to 75%, you know, almost kind of get into that clear cut type um, setting. You're getting close to that 1500, maybe even 2000 pounds of forage per acre. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's just amazing what a little bit of, even a little bit of sunlight can do and you add a lot and uh, you just really get this explosion. Um, yeah. So that's another thing too um, that I've kind of found <clears throat> if we can kind of hit on this a little bit is kind of, you know, let's say you come in, you know, you do some, you know, forest stand improvement or, you know, even some TSI. Now you've got some good sunlight coming in. Um, maybe you've got that, you know, you know, plus 50% sunlight coming in now. And, you know, it's maybe a year or two after things are really starting to get thick. Uh, how are you kind of recommending to, to clients and landowners to manage that, you know, kind of more specifically for whitetail habitat? Yep. So it's always obviously important to, you know, maintain a bunch of that young forest is kind of what I call it. Um, basically that woody vegetation, you know, specifically, but obviously there's going to be, you know, forbs in there too, that uh, is at that deer's level for browse, but then also, you know, at their uh, level for cover too. Um, so it, it's roughly, if you were to, you know, cut an area, you know, open it up, and you know, six-ish years kind of go down the line, it's actually gonna start forming a subcanopy again and start shading out that sunlight. Mm -hmm. So then at that point, that's where you want to go in there again and basically, you know, cut down, you know, those smaller saplings and open up that sunlight again, even just at that kind of subcanopy level. Um, you know, obviously down south they do prescribe burning. That's you know, obviously another way um, that you're able to, you know, reduce that veget the woody stem. Um, vegetation and increase that herbaceous cover but at least here in Minnesota don't do too much burning um, in the forest itself where I'm usually just recommending you know chainsaw and having to go back in there after six-ish years and have to keep uh, opening up that that canopy and allow that sunlight to get in there. Sure sure so now in the, in a, a typical I guess uh, bedding area that you're recommending for a client um, in one of your plans um, how, I guess, are you, 
are you recommending that landowners kind of manage that setting um, versus just, you know, some other opener areas or, you know, travel corridors or stuff like that? Is that mm-hmm. totally different how you're, how you're recommending that? Yeah. And it obviously kind of depends on, you know, the property and whatnot. Um, Cause a lot of times, you know, in Minnesota, we have quite a bit of lowland um, swamps that have, you know, a lot of willow dogwood, um, even some black ash, maybe scattered in there too. That provides awesome bedding where it's, it's sometimes you don't really have to manage that um, a whole lot. And, you know, those deer are going to bed there, especially if, you know, you end up getting some pressure on the property, they're going to be able to go there. Cause you know, nobody else is going to be going in there for the most part. Sure. Um, yep. But then obviously if they don't really have a whole lot of, lowlands or maybe it's too wet kind of in where it's open water type thing um then obviously you gotta end up cutting in some areas on some upland sites and that's where you know bringing out the chainsaw and just opening up that canopy most times but i mean the biggest thing that uh not a lot of landowners do in my opinion at least and it's kind of it seems like it's become a fad but i don't know i still don't hear it too much actually coming from landowners um is doing the hinge cutting because obviously you can open up the canopy um, and maybe lay a bunch of trees down flat and, you know, they can decompose relatively fast and kind of get basically at that ground level mm-hmm. um, versus I recommend, you know, trying to hinge cut, you know, 20, 30% of the trees in your little bedding areas to provide that horizontal structure, you know, especially for deer, that's going to be, you know, huge to feel security and be able to have um, that visual cover in there too. And then obviously have escape routes in there. But that's usually what I'm telling them is, you know, try and open it up to, you know, that 50% sunlight in there. Um, but then actually hinge cutting, you know, 20% of those trees um, that you're in there um, cutting to provide some of that horizontal structure and, you know, a lot of that cover. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, like we were talking about earlier before this conversation, um, we are talking about basically the way I look at some properties and that I'm working at. I'm typically, you know, depending on obviously the property, timber value, stuff like that. Um, you know, I try to take around that 30% of, of trees out that are your low value trees that are re- aren't really going to make a, you know, a good, um, log for timber and, uh, using those for my hinge cutting trees and moving them where I want, um, for structure and, you know, a lot of screening and blocking, um, depending on the situation. So that's kind of what I like to do. I like that, that kind of setting off of what you were saying that, uh, yeah. makes a big difference for sure. What, yeah, exactly. So what are the main trees, I guess, uh, over in Minnesota, I'm not super familiar, um, that you guys are hinge cutting that you found good success with? Um, the big ones that I usually, I'd say the number one that's easy to hinge cut and it's really desirable for deer is, is red maple. Um, that one hinge cuts really well. And then, you know, that's one they're going to be eating, you know, pretty much throughout the year for the most part. Um, either the leaves are then end up being, you know, the way brows come wintertime um ash green ash is another one that'll hinge cut pretty well basswood is one that hinge cuts um pretty decent too and um especially how big those leaves sometimes get can provide um quite a bit of cover too uh those are kind of the the red maple ash basswood those are kind of the big ones i mean depending on you know who it is you could even um hinge cut cherries um and that kind of goes back to you know what your goals are um type of thing because if you told that to a traditional forest who's talking about you know timber valley if you hinge cut a cherry tree that's probably a pretty big sin so it just kind of goes sure. back to finding who the landowner is and what their goals are yep yep exactly what what is their value of that tree 
because exactly well down there for sure. <clears throat> so what are um, I know? Obviously, we're kind of in different different uh, states. You know, I'm in Michigan. You're in uh, Minnesota. But what are I guess some good generalizations for to look out for if you're looking to get enrolled into like a forestry management program? Um, or something like that on your property that can kind of apply to, you know, guys kind of in the Midwest, I guess you could say, if you can broaden those things that you're looking mm-hmm. for in those programs. Yeah, it seems like most states have, um, you know, if you contact your local DNR forester, um, they're going to be able to help you out with it. It seems like most states have some sort of forest management plan similar to what Minnesota does. And usually every state has, uh, you know, some sort of tax break or tax incentive um, program that you end up qualifying for after getting a forest management plan written. I think actually I just kind of looked at it a little bit and Michigan has um, something similar where you might be able to get tax exempt for having some some acres enrolled um, in a program, but obviously I'm not as familiar with it as you might be. Um, but obviously just contacting your local DNR forester is going to be, you know, the first step with that. But I, I always kind of, you know, warn people too with, you know, because you're going to get a forester and you know there's different ranges of foresters out there and you know kind of maybe doing your homework on who you get out there can make a big difference because there's i've seen in touching in minnesota plenty of times there's you know you kind of got old school traditional foresters where there's nothing wrong with them but all they really know is kind of managing it for timber value they're going to know you know some things about deer management or turkey management or whatever it is but a lot of times they don't see eye to eye per se with you know some deer hunters who are strictly managing it um for deer so that'd be the one thing just to kind of keep an eye out for um is try to get you know the best forester that is you know like almost i always say i'm a, you know i'm a deer hunter first a lot of the times and then kind of a forester next so yeah get yep. that type of forester that is you know kind of in the same wavelength as you that's going to help out a lot yeah yeah for sure no i like that it's a great thing for people for uh, guys to consider when they're looking at for someone yeah, for yeah. Sure. So um, I guess the next thing, so we kind of went over a little bit on managing, you know, you've got 50% in there, um, you know, into a forest uh, floor, you got that sunlight coming in. Um, what about clear cuts? You know, you've got some different areas where they come in, you know, especially in Michigan, they do aspen clear cuts and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, what, what's kind of some of the best ways you've learned um, kind of in managing those um, for mainly bedding, but, you know, for other you know, wildlife value too. Yep. So yeah, it's the same thing here in Minnesota. I mean, the poplar or aspen is, you know, the best way to regenerate it basically is by clear cutting it because all those aspen are clones of themselves and they're connected by that big root system, you know, underground. And basically if you don't manage that slowly, those aspen will continue to die out over time. And, you know, there's probably plenty of people, who, you know, maybe listening or have seen it where, you know, those aspen get, you know, pretty big, you know, 12 inch diameter plus, and they almost actually get these, they're called Fernelius conchs. They're almost like little mushrooms that start growing on the side of aspen. Yep. And yeah, that basically indicates there's rot inside that tree. Yep. So when you see more and more of those pop up on your aspen, you know, basically they're starting to decline and then you'll probably start seeing them snap up uh, halfway up the tree or almost at where that rot spot. Um, is that so you kind of I always say cause I see it plenty of times here in Minnesota and I always say you know it's kind of your fork in the road where you either let forest succession kind of take its course and you let that aspen you know slowly work your, its way out of the property or you know you manage it and you actually go in there and 
cut that aspen out, clear cut it um, as much as you can. Even I, a lot of times, um, depending on where it's at in the state and kind of property, um, I'll even sometimes encouraging expanding those aspen pockets because aspen's an awesome one for, you know, a lot of wildlife, deer, turkey, grouse, even, you know, a bunch of songbirds too. Um, so if you can have, you know, especially areas that have maybe more hardwoods, you know, oaks, maples, um, cherries and ashes, and they don't have too much aspen, that's where I actually say, you know, cut your aspen pocket and it only might be like a quarter acre, but then actually cut a ring around that aspen pocket as well to allow that root system to continue to spread out because that young aspen regeneration um, is tough to beat for forage, but then also um, cover for deer and a variety of other habitat. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. That's that great stuff. I actually uh, had an opportunity earlier this uh, this year, back in, oh, I believe it was January, February. Um, I actually was working with uh, another guy, no, and he was working with a biologist up in the uh, uh, north part of our, northern uh, part of our state. And, um, we did a uh, basically an somewhat aspen clear cut. We were taking out some other stuff too. We were leaving uh, what they were calling nesting trees, you know, for um, you know hawks and other stuff like that, mm-hmm. um, other birds and wildlife. And then uh, we were basically clear cutting all the rest, and we we're actually just leaving all the tops. It was mainly for uh, quail, yeah, quail habitat. And uh, so yeah, I learned a lot right there. That was that was just kind of another thing that you know I typically don't do a lot with, but it was cool to kind of see that that section of it too. And that sometimes that can also, you know, if you kind of want to do different things with your property, you know, if you're a turkey hunter or you want to do some upland game um, bird hunting and stuff like that, you can also, you know, in my opinion, you can, you know, can take those sections too. And um, obviously as we both know, deer love edges, you know, their creatures are at edge. Mm-hmm. So you can, you can kind of use those clear cuts and maybe those areas that don't, those deer aren't going to really, completely go into and in bed just because it's so thick you've got so many tops in there but they might be able to you know uh walk that edge right around those those thick spots you you know kind of create it as your own pinch points and stuff and you're kind of almost getting two for one uh in some of those different situations if you're getting quail habitat and stuff and then uh good deer habitat too so yeah Yeah, no that's uh, yeah that aspen too the kind of going back to what you're saying with you know how you manage those clear cuts uh that aspen will grow pretty dang quick even you know one year's growth can be you know two three feet um tall sometimes and that's when i think at least where i'm at sometimes you almost got to go back in and cut that aspen you know maybe at that four or five year mark just because um you've probably seen it when aspen you know starts to continue to mature and gets more into sapling and pole size you know that'll create quite a big canopy and shade out a lot of that sunlight and, you know, kind of almost sometimes be a little too thick for deer. They'll yep. move through there for sure. And like you're saying, definitely use the edge. But a lot of times I'll tell landowners to try and break up that age class. If they have kind of a lot of that sapling or pole aspen is go in and basically recut some areas to stimulate that root system again and get a bunch of that younger, you know, sapling aspen popping up that's at that browse site. And then it's better cover too. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Adds, you know, kind of some one thing I always go back to is like you mentioned, you know, going back to that kind of uh, 50 inch or either deer's height uh, kind of rule of thumb. Um, you know, is it anything over 50 inches really, you know, give or take is, you know, in my opinion is basically if you're managing just for white tails, it's, it's kind of useless. Um, yep. So if you can kind of manage and, and keep that in that, you know, 50 inch, uh, Mark, 
and then you know adding in more diversity like you're saying with different age class of them um, the more diversity you can kind of get in all these different pockets uh, you can start kind of compartmentalizing the property and um, turn normally turns out pretty cool so I've seen that on a couple different properties and recommend that to a couple different clients so Absolutely. yeah yeah for sure no that's that's great great information on that I think that's something where you hear a lot of guys talking about you know, yeah, you need to clear cut this or do that. And then, you know, either it's a log or something and, you know, they're gone and they never tell landowner anything else on how to manage mm -hmm. it. And, you know, they're wondering where all their deer went or why they're not using it anymore. So, <laughs> yeah, it's exactly so. here. It's like, oh, yeah, it was great for, you know, two or three years. And then, you know, the deer sightings kind of went down or the use went down or whatever it is. And that's just that uh, those trees maturing and just not getting as good a cover there. Yep. Yep. For sure. Have you noticed, um, I'm not sure, you know, quite type what your soil type is over there, but I know here in Michigan, we've got all the way from clay, rocky clay, you know, kind of loamy clay all the way up to, you know, almost pure beach sand kind of up where I'm at. I've got a farm up in Northern Michigan, Northern lower peninsula and, uh, it's okay. crazy beach sand. So I've noticed, you know, obviously the better their dirt is, the more, the, the more you've actually got to do that maintenance and manage your clear cuts and your, your hinge cutting stuff like that because you just get so much growth from it um whereas you kind of get into that lower quality soil you can kind of get away with with more you can actually cut a little bit harder you you can get away with less maintenance is kind of what i've found depending on the situation but i didn't know if that was the same over where you're at or yeah no absolutely it's, it's kind of similar um here you get kind of more northern minnesota you do get a lot of um, loam and clay and you know some pretty good soil but then actually there's kind of a stretch in sort of north of the metro basically um, where it's a lot of sand kind of like you call like beach sand you know a lot of the times where you definitely don't uh, have to go in there as much and manage it just because it stays open um, a lot longer than if you were you know on a better soil site where those trees are going to be growing a lot faster which it's kind of, you know, it's, it's good for, I guess, the landlord. You don't have to go in there as much. Um, and it's also not bad sometimes, even with, you know, going back to Aspen, the Aspen might, might not come in as thick as it would um, up north, which just basically allows, you know, hopefully, you know, better things to be popping in there with, um, you know, shrubs and then also just a lot of vegetation um, things as well, you know, herbaceous cover, especially in the sand areas that I see a lot of raspberries, blackberries, um, things like that are coming in there and usually end up being pretty thick, which, you know, can obviously be really good for, for cover, but then obviously as a forage, it's, it's really good for deer. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So is, when you're kind of going in with these plans, you know, helping landowners and, uh, you know, obviously you're taking out, you know, possibly if you're doing a logging or whatever, you're obviously taking out a lot of trees, you know, you're making room for a lot of other vegetation and growth. Are you typically adding, you know, are you, are you doing tree plantings, you know, spruce planting, stuff like that? Are you, are you recommending landowners to add, add stuff and plant stuff on their property? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it just kind of goes back to depending on the landowner, but obviously like you're kind of saying, the more diversity, you know, basically the more wildlife you're going to be able to support and, you know, especially for deer, I always, if there isn't any type of conifer, spruce, pine trees on the property, I always recommend. Um, going in there and, you know, cutting an area or if it's maybe an area that's already open, um, plugging in some spruce is kind of one that I've had success with, you know, the deer won't browse on it. And then, you know, it, it grows in a variety of soils and we usually grow pretty well and kind of has a, a fuller 
canopy to it per se, I guess, mm -hmm. uh, where it kind of takes up a lot of room, um, which ends up being really good because then come winter time, it's just going to be able to prevent a lot of snow from getting in there. And then obviously, you know, there's the kind of that thermal cover that uh, it's going to be a little bit warmer in there in the winter time and, you know, away from the weather and things like that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I've seen, uh, I've seen kind of a one extreme to the other on some properties that I've been on. I've seen, you know, where they've got some diversity uh, on the property, you know, and it looks really good. They've got, you know, whether it's an old field setting or something like that, and they've got some good mix and, you know, some conifers and, you know, some white pine, stuff like that. And, um, and then I've also seen one extreme too, where you've got almost a, you know, this huge, uh, a block of whether it's red pine or jack pine, you know, that, that were planted and, um, you know, there's almost nothing in there for wildlife. So definitely, I think, you know, what I typically am recommending, and I'm just curious to see what your opinion is, what you typically recommend. So typically what I recommend is kind of opening up some of those, you know, either making a food plot out of some of it or just opening up, getting more sunlight in, and then you can kind of use those, you know, pockets of thermal cover or whatever um, is growing there, you know, kind of to the advantage, either screening around it or, you know, some good thermal cover bedding, you know, close by to that, that food source. But I'm curious yeah. to what your thoughts are with that. Yeah, because we have, uh, you know, in certain parts of the state, yeah, I pretty much throughout most of the state besides kind of down south, you have some, but, uh, you know, you have pine plantations, basically, almost like you have down south, and um, red pine is kind of a big one, but usually you get uh, white pine mixed in there, too, and obviously, those can sound like you're kind of saying, you know, there can be virtually, you know, nothing in the understory besides pine needles, which uh, obviously isn't providing cover, isn't providing food um, for deer or other wildlife. Um, it does just provide that thermal cover come winter. Um, but I'm kind of in the same boat where if it's, you know, a bigger chunk, you know, say five acres, whatever it is, of this same monoculture kind of pine plantation, I always recommend. Um, if they're obviously in it for managing for deer wildlife, cutting in some areas that opens up that sunlight or even going through and actually thinning out that pine stand, you know, commercially through um, a logger and just kind of goes back to that basal area. You know, it's really high stem counts in those pine plantations. So just thinning that out, allowing some more sunlight in there is going to give you some more understory vegetation and that growth. And then even, you know, within that thinning, maybe pick some pockets where you open it up that canopy even more hopefully encourage kind of bedding in those spots yeah yeah for sure what um kind of going back to forestry and uh logging real quick what are what are some of the current tree values and stuff you're you're seeing right now kind of when you're working with with landowners um it varies a little bit from where i'm at you know where you are in the state sure um and it seems like even like the timber market just is kind of almost like the you know stock it, it changes quite a bit depending on you know how full a mill is and kind of if loggers need timber kind of thing too um but i'd say it, it used to be really good you know i think probably like 10 or 15 years ago um it used to be pretty good but now it's kind of gotten back down where, where it isn't you know anything groundbreaking unless you have a lot of timber i mean i think most cases people think their timber is worth a lot more value than it really is. Sure. Um, where a lot of times we usually do cords here in Minnesota, which it's basically um, a four by four by eight uh, stock or a pile of wood is what a cord is. 
if you can imagine, you know, wood pile, basically that's four feet long, um, four feet tall, and then eight feet uh, in length. Okay. And that's what a cord of wood is. And usually for like, you know, Aspen, you're probably getting around 30 bucks a cord maybe. Um, And then, you know, hardwoods will be a little bit more, especially if they have logs in it where maybe you're getting, you know, 70 bucks a cord. Um, something like that for, you know, your oak, maple, um, things like that. More of your hardwoods that might have some bigger logs in them. Um, red pine is actually always one that's pretty good because red pine is what you're making, you know, your two by fours out of and things like that. And there's, there's always people building things. So um, sure. I think red pine one, that's always going to be one that's going to be worth some money. And, you know, there's in some cases where I've heard people paying, you know, hundred dollars a cord for, for red pine. So sometimes uh, that can be, uh, a decent uh, tree to have on your property but it varies it varies quite a bit with just the time of the year and then you know just with where because sometimes if logger needs wood kind of thing um, they'll pay you know a lot more money than if maybe they're like eh, I don't necessarily need to you know have more wood or anything like that yeah yep so what would you say you know kind of when you're writing these plans and stuff obviously this is you know I'm assuming you do this basically 365 um days out of the year but what's i guess best if you're gonna have a landlord what would be the best time you would recommend to him for to to have him uh get the property logged out uh that does depend on the area but winter you know it's going to be obviously the most popular one just because you're going to be able to get to different areas that you might not be able to get to in the summertime and then especially with you know just regeneration in general um you're going to get a better explosion of kind of understory growth if you um, do the logging in the winter time when all those root systems are basically sitting there dormant um, underneath the soil versus if you were to go in there you know fall or or even summer um, during the growing season you're just not going to have as good of a, a regeneration response um, versus the summertime especially like with aspen i think it's almost like in the winter time you're getting you know eight thousand even sometimes ten thousand stems the acre of that aspen shooting up uh, versus summer, I think it's more like it's like cut in half. I think it's like five thousand um, stems the acre, something like that. But that obviously just kind of depends on the area and whatnot. But yeah, in general, uh, summer you're just not going to have as good of re- regeneration response versus the winter time. Yeah, yep, yeah. That's a lot of what I found, you know. And obviously, it depends on every um, property. Some you just can't get in during the summer. Yeah, I found the same thing. But yeah, for sure. No, it's. That's some great stuff. So, yeah, exactly. And yeah, even, you know, sometimes too, with kind of the timber price too. So a lot of times loggers will pay a lot more um, for cutting if you're able to have access in the summertime, just because of that reason, you know, there's not as much um, access to wood in the summertime as there is um, versus the wintertime. So a lot of times loggers will pay um, a little bit more for, for summer wood versus winter wood. Okay. That's yeah, something to definitely keep in mind for sure. So I just uh, on a kind of a side note too, I want to, as we're kind of wrapping up, um, I wanted to, uh, I heard you recently, I saw you recently went to the uh, QDMA Deersturd 2 course. And uh, if you want, if you don't mind, if you can take us through kind of some different updates, I know there's quite a few people that I know of that have kind of gone through that course, including myself um, and kind of some new stuff maybe that they've, they've um, brought into the course or just some, just some um, topics, you know, that you'd, some subtopics or uh, stuff that you learned that took away. Um, maybe if you can go over some of those, that'd be great. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of it is, you know, a lot of the information that they talk about, you know, is, is on their website um, and through their Deer Steward 1 course, even then you just kind of get more into detail with the Deer Steward 2 course. Sure. Um, the big thing, and I think they, they usually do this at most uh, courses, but I thought it was just really cool is, you know, they had, um, it was in Wisconsin, they happened to talk to um, the Wisconsin DNR and were able to bring out uh, a doe that was, I think, hit by, or was either hit by a car or was actually able to harvest uh, from a farmer, from a farmer um, through some sort of special program that, you know, basically damaging their crops kind of thing. Yep. So it was pretty cool. Kip Adams was, you know, basically able to kind of open it up and kind of show the anatomy of that deer and shot placement because before even opening it up, um, and you may have seen it too, it kind of has a demonstration of uh, the anatomy of a deer um, in a kind of a skeleton type uh, mannequin thing and kind of just showing shot placement of, you know, where the heart actually is, where the lungs actually are, you know, liver, all that. And then, you know, how our shot placement can, you know, make a big difference for what you're hitting. And it was just cool actually seeing, because I've, I've always wanted to actually, you know, dissect a deer and do that, but I just, you know, never gotten around to it. Um, sure. And actually seeing that in person, that was super cool to see. Um, just seeing, you know, where that heart actually is located a little bit, you know, further up, um, you know, basically towards the, towards the head versus what a lot of people think. Um, yeah. It was actually cool to see that in person. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. I was fortunate enough that uh, Kip did the same thing at our course several years ago. So that was, that was a really big uh, learning curve for me. And I, uh, I definitely try to use that judgment every time I'm <clears throat> at full draw. Yep. Uh, deer. yep. Absolutely. But yeah, I mean, a lot of the other stuff was, Probably stuff that you had too. I know, you know, the Craig, Dr. Craig Harper was there too. And, you know, talking about early successional um, management and obviously the big thing that I think not a lot of people realize is if with deer, at least, you know, grasses in these early successional areas doesn't really provide a whole lot of value. And then even, you know, in some of these early successional areas, looking at what's actually at that ground level, you know, going down to basically that, that ground and seeing what's there because there is one area that we looked at that had a bunch of you know it must have been kind of a a basic uh, prairie time type planting that had a bunch of wildflowers and different forbs in there but if you were to actually kind of go down to that bare ground you could see there was actually you know grasses or a layer of grass in that understory mm -hmm. um, that basically if you were you know and this is kind of more turkey or brood rearing kind of habitat you know that's not going to be able to navigate through just because how thick that grass is um, and that's kind of goes with timing of fire and then even, you know, using herbicide to um, try to kill those cool season grasses specifically. And, but even there was another field kind of right next to it that I think one was basically, basically burned at a, I think it was every two years or something like that. And there was just a lot more grasses in it. I mean, and I, I try to remember what, what kind of he gave it on a ranking. It was maybe like a D or something like that versus, okay. you know, everyone who probably would see it would be like, oh my gosh, it's such a, you know, beautiful prairie planting with, you know, a bunch of these wildflowers and they're like, oh, that's got to be great for, for habitat, which, you know, depending on the species, it might be, but specifically for deer, I mean, it was probably like 70%, you know, grasses, which obviously isn't going to provide a whole lot of value, um, you know, especially in the wintertime, I think, you know, when you, if you have snow and you have two or three feet of snow, um, you know, those grasses are going to lay flat most of the time and it's going to be 
you know, pretty much useless for deer. Yeah, it takes a lot of energy for them to dig up something that is not going to give them a whole lot of energy, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep, exactly. Yeah, yep. Um, so, yeah, you said you have a uh, uh, farm in Minnesota. So what are, just real quick as we kind of are wrapping up, what are a couple things that you guys are working on at your farm kind of getting ready before season? Uh, we just got some fall food plots in um, doing kind of grass because, you know, I think we have turnip, rape, radish has kind of been a simple one that we've just kind of gone with and have had some pretty good success with. And then we actually had a takedown. We, they're not real, I wouldn't call it a fence. It's almost like you probably have seen like ribbon that sometimes they'll use around um, pastures for cattle or even horses or something like that, that isn't really going to. They can easily jump over it if they want to, but we put it up around our food plots just because we have such um, high deer numbers that, you know, if we didn't, and it doesn't keep them out, you know, it doesn't keep all of them out, but I think we've seen it at least produces a little bit that if it is um, maybe not as wet of a spring or something like that, um, it'll allow at least a majority of the corner soybeans to be able to get past that deer browse though. So we got to take, take that ribbon down um, for this season um but that yeah we just got kind of we're a little bit late again trail cameras up so we're finally starting to get some pictures of some good bucks there's one in particular i've been going after it's probably like it's either five and a half or six and a half years old and have had like you know, three or four encounters with it and it's a it's a nice deer but it's i trying to figure it out still sure sure oh yeah that's uh it's, it's always challenging when they get to that that age it's it's a totally different animal typically than uh than those you know two three four year olds once they get it past that they're they're a different animal <clears throat> yeah absolutely most yeah, situations. Hoping, you know usually they say once it kind of gets older you know they get a little more lazier you know more predictable which i've i've kind of seen in the you know past few years i've gotten close but still kind of i mean there's one time where it was within bow range but basically 40 yards on the neighbor's property and just never crossed over onto ours that was a that was a tough one, but hopefully this year figure them out and get an opportunity at them. Yeah, well, for sure. Well, good luck and uh, hope you uh, at least see them or get a crack at them. Yeah, no, absolutely. Sure. You never know, but you got to get out there and try, right? Yep, absolutely. For sure. I love it. Well, uh, if there's nothing else that uh, you wanted to add, I uh, really appreciate you coming on here again. And um, I look forward to uh, maybe possibly doing another one in the near future um so yeah, yeah. appreciate you coming Absolutely. on here so where well, can for having me. yeah of course where can uh people reach you at um northland habitat uh i'm on instagram and facebook and then i have a personal account Jaden bjorkland too um you'll be able to kind of find me through tags on if you just go to northland habitat and then my website northlandhabitat.com um, has a bunch of kind of information on what I do and services and things like that from, you know, the basic forest management plans. But then I do write um, specific deer management plans as well for those landowners who are kind of more deer oriented and, you know, want more specifics on kind of, you know, what you do with, you know, putting in bedding cuts, food plots, trail access, stand location, trail camera location, sure. all that good stuff, water holes. Yep. Um, so yeah, that's probably the, the easiest way to get a hold of me would be going to that website. And I think my number's on there too. If you call or text, um, or just can contact me through social media. Awesome. Very cool. Well, 
uh, thanks again. And um, I appreciate you coming on here. And uh, until next time, I will talk to you. Have a great night. Awesome. Thanks, Tom. Good luck this season. Thank you. You too. Well, guys, I hope you all enjoyed that podcast with Jaden of uh, Northland Habitat. I know I uh, had some great takeaways, and uh, it was just really enjoyable to sit down with him and uh, talk about the way he helps other landowners over in Minnesota, where he's located, um, improve their properties, um, you know, for, for timber value, recreational, and uh, and also hunting. So, really appreciate you guys listening to this. I'm gonna have uh, some really nice. Uh, cool upcoming speakers coming on the podcast here soon so be sure to be kind of be checking in um as well as um, i'm going to be having some more youtube come uh videos coming out here soon on my youtube channel legendary habitat so uh, please subscribe and uh, follow along as we build the anticipation up until hunting season so hopefully everybody has uh really enjoyed these podcasts so far i know uh, we're starting to gain a, a decent amount of listeners so i really appreciate the support and uh so thanks again guys and remember to always strive to be a better steward of god's creation